0: You know, I realize it really has been a roller coaster ride for us uh, in our country over the last couple of days. And this virus that seems to have its origin in a remote part of the world uh, has made its way close to home. And a week ago, none of us would have imagined an executive order from the governor of our state that actually mandated gatherings of a hundred or more be suspended. And um, It's been a hard thing for us to process, especially a a church where we have upwards of more than a thousand worshipers on any given Sunday. And so um, let me just go ahead and clarify this. Nobody is saying that we can't meet, okay? There are multiple ways of the church meeting rather than the church all coming together in one single location or one room. And I think about the church that has thrived Um, in certain underground movements around the world where Christianity has been illegal. And so, if anything, this is giving us as believers uh, here in America just a little small taste of what it's like uh, to uh, be a Christian in perhaps a persecuted context. And yet, nonetheless, this is a time where a lot of people are asking questions. Uh, There's a lot of fear, and we don't want to give in to the fear And not everything that's being said is being said with wisdom and discernment. So God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us a spirit of love, power, love, and a sound mind. And so it's important that we keep that in mind. So again, we may need to really get used to meeting in a different way um, over the next couple of weeks. And as I said just a moment ago, I've been working with our leadership to determine some ways that we can still do church And uh, we're looking at that, you know, I think it's more important for us right now to remember that we are the church. And um, the church is not simply a place you go. The church is who you are. We are those that have been called out from the world by God unto himself. We are his people and we trust in him. And right now the church has a tremendous opportunity to speak to a lot of the fear um, and to just show the world that we have a calm confidence in a Savior. And I want to point people to Jesus. You know, think back through church history at how the church has responded to various difficulties, uh, such as the plague in 16th century Europe, um, the university in Wittenberg, Germany, where Luther taught, Martin Luther, the great reformer. Uh, during the pandemic, it was shut down, and Luther, among other faculty members were urged to leave and yet there were a lot of german pastors who looked to luther for some leadership and some counsel and he actually wrote a letter to a pastor friend in 1527 and listen to listen to what he said he said if a deadly epidemic strikes we should stay where we are make our preparations and take courage in the fact that we're mutually bound together He says, I will ask God to mercifully protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, and take medicine. (laughs) That's good counsel right there. He said, I'm going to avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thereby inflict others and cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God wished to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he's expected of me So I'm not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. Yet if my neighbor needs me, I will not avoid place or person, but will give myself. This is God-fearing faith because it's neither brash nor foolhardy, and it does not tempt God. So yeah, we want to exercise common sense in a time like this, but you know what? We also want to operate with an otherworldly sense that comes from by being the people of God in whom the Holy Spirit lives. And this is a wonderful opportunity for us to really reach out to those around us and to share the hope of Jesus. You know, it's very possible in the coming days, especially with, uh, with schools not being in session, um, there will be a lot of parents looking for some folks that might be willing to help watch their kids while mom and dad can go to work. That might be something you might be able to do to help someone out. Uh, there may be an opportunity for you to go to the grocery store and, you know, on behalf of someone who may be older. Now, good luck finding toilet paper. But uh, <laughs> bottom line is, folks, this is an opportunity for us to really reach out and to share the love of Jesus with those around us. And I'm trusting that there's going to be multiple opportunities and conversations that we're able to have with our unbelieving neighbors. And there are going to be people who are going to come to know Jesus through this thing. And that's our hope. Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to 1 Peter. um, The first epistle of Peter, uh, chapters 4 and 5. I want to step away from our study through the book of Acts, at least for the time being. We'll pick that back up later. But it's interesting that in the last couple of chapters of 1 Peter, the apostle Peter spends some time instructing both the leaders of the church as well as the church itself In a time of difficulty, Um, again, the church has faced far worse situations uh, than than the one that we're facing even now in our country. I think about the church that's been faced with persecution. Such was the case for the believers to whom Peter writes in 1 Peter. These were some believers who were absolutely being persecuted for their faith, and yet, you know, Peter doesn't tell them to run away. He doesn't tell them to cave into fear and that kind of thing. He tells them to, uh, to trust in the Lord. And he gives some very practical instruction in a time of crisis. Um, he basically says in these last two chapters of First Peter that the leadership of the church as well as the membership of the church need to be patient with one another in the face of difficulty. God's shepherds need to be patient with his people who perhaps are fearful, and yet God's people need to be patient with their shepherd as he tries to lead them through times of crisis. And I think that's true across the board as far as leadership is concerned. In the church, in the state government, our president and his administration, I think about the school systems, I think about Dr. Keith Curley, the head of school here at High Point Christian Academy and all of the tough decisions that he's had to wrestle with this past week in the school systems and things, you know, this is a time for us to really pray for our leadership and to support our leadership in the decisions that they make. So really just for the next few minutes, I want to just sort of share with you a message I've simply entitled, uh, Hope in a Time of Crisis. Hope in a Time of Crisis Uh, because that's exactly what Peter uh, tells believers that they can be sure of uh, when faced with such persecution. They've got hope in a living savior. Now what I wanna do is I just wanna walk us through 1 Peter chapter uh, four, beginning in verse number 12 to the end of the chapter, and then I wanna go on into chapter number five. And I've just got several principles from these two chapters that I really wanna give you uh, by way of hope as it relates to times of crisis, times like this. A couple things, you want to write these down, let me encourage you to do that. We don't have these on the screen, but you can jot these down in the margin of your Bible or a piece of paper. But crisis does several things. To begin with, crisis works to reveal the character of our faith. How is it that crisis often serves the purposes of God? Well, for God's people, crisis often reveals the character and the contents of our faith. I mean, look at what Peter says there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He says, beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Uh, don't let the crisis get the best of you. Don't operate with a spirit of fear. Don't be surprised at fiery trials. Instead, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So really Peter is dealing with Christian suffering and he's encouraging uh, his readers in the midst of their trials for their faith. Now, they were being persecuted for their faith. It was a, it was a terrible ordeal. And yet, having endured plenty of afflictions for Christ's sake in his own life, uh, Peter is more than qualified to speak on this subject. So, so how is it that they were to respond to their trials? How should we as believers respond to crises that come our way in life? How do we face the heat? Well, you'll notice that Peter doesn't give them answers as much as he gives them assurances. A lot of times we want answers, don't we? You know, why is this happening the way that it is? Why is my loved one sick? Why has my job uh, been the one that's been decided to be terminated and that kind of thing? God, I need answers, I need answers. And often God doesn't work that way to give us answers, but he does something better because he gives us assurance. And he gives us the assurances of his promises in his word. And so Peter is saying for these believers to move forward in the midst of difficulty, they needed a clear perspective. The glory of God needed to eclipse the nature of their circumstances. I read a quote by Pastor John Piper. He said this, he said, Wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians and wimpy Christians won't survive the days ahead. Folks, if our understanding of God in the Christian life is one of these, you know, that it's sort of tiptoeing through the tulips, nothing but prosperity all of our days, you know, that is not a New Testament Christianity. Uh, we can expect suffering. We can expect difficulty. We can expect crisis in life. Jesus said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. He tells his disciples that. You're going to encounter trials in life. It's it's not an if, it's a when. But you can be of good cheer, Jesus says, because I have overcome the world. And so Peter is is writing with this confidence and he's saying, listen, this trial, this fiery ordeal that you're in has has a way of testing you, proving your faith, stretching your faith, leading you to trust God uh, more than perhaps you ever have before in your life. And, and so he says, don't let it catch you off guard, but expect it in life. That was true for them. Uh, it's also true for us. So in what way does crisis really help us? Well, it helps reveal the character and the content of our faith. But I want you to notice a second thing, all right? Number two, uh, crisis often helps to remind us of what's most important in life. Not only does it reveal the character of my faith, but it helps remind me of what's really important in life. You get on down there toward the close of chapter 4, and Peter says this. He says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, then what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Peter's just simply saying God is always working in our lives, saving us from the presence and the power of sin, as believers, and though it's hard for us to understand, we need the heat of the furnace to be purified and set apart. It's something that God uses. It's a part of his plan for your life as a Christian. Trials become tools in the hand of God to refine his own. This is something that James said in James chapter 1, verse 2. He said, count it all joy when you fall into various kinds of trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work so that you may be complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God uses the trial, he uses the heat of the furnace uh, to strengthen our faith, to sift us, uh, to cause us to look into our life and the things that we're often valuing in life and see if we're really valuing the things that matter the most. Which, by the way, isn't it an amazing thing how this... um, how this pandemic, in many ways, it's sort of touched on every area that we value in American society. Think about this. Um, March Madness is canceled. Now, if you're a Tar Heel fan, I guess that's a good thing, but uh, our March was canceled (laughs) in February. But bottom line is, um, look at everything that really has just sort of toppled like dominoes in our society by this This pandemic. You've got the sports world, which by the way, when you pray, pray for a lot of disappointed student-athletes who maybe their career came to a close at a time in their life when they least expected it. You know, everything that perhaps they were looking forward to has come crashing down around them. You need to pray for those student-athletes and pray that they understand that, listen, their identity is not in the type of athlete they are uh, the career that they have for themselves, but that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. And they can find their true identity only in the Lord Jesus Christ. The stock market, the financial system has been touched by this thing. You know, the Bible says, don't put all of your stock and all of your hope in the uncertainty of riches. Because riches can take, like wings of an eagle, they can fly away at just the least amount of notice. Wealth is so uncertain, that's not something we can put our confidence in. So you've got the sports world that's been touched by this. The financial system's been touched by this. What about the educational system? The cancellation of schools and uh, teachers who are having to scramble and uh, experimenting with online learning and those kinds of things in the school systems. This is a big deal. Beyond that, think about how the church in America has been affected by this thing. A lot of times we put all of our stock in the way that we do church. The traditions that we have. The fact that we as the church have always had this big building that we've been comfortable to have. We have this freedom to come and assemble uh, hundreds and thousands. And now that's been affected. So folks, all of these areas in American society where we really put a lot of our stock A lot of our confidence, all of these have been touched by something just as tiny as a germ. You think God needs something big to cause the world to shut down? No, it just takes something microscopic as a little virus, a little germ, for God to get the attention of the world to remind us that, you know what, we're not in charge and in control of things like we think we are, but our Creator is, and our Savior is, and we can trust in Him. So these times of crisis really have a way of of sifting us and reminding us of what's most important. There's a third thing that a time of crisis often does in our life, builds our faith, reminds us of what's most important, but you get into chapter five and, and Peter says that it serves to reflect the grace of God in our lives. It's interesting to me that You know, he he closes out chapter 4 with talking about suffering according to the will of God, entrusting your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. And then he turns right around and he gives specific instruction to church leaders and, and church members. He says, I'm exhorting the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. In other words, this is a time for you Christian leaders to stand up and provide some real spiritual leadership to those who are in crisis. Shepherd the flock that's been entrusted to your care. Uh, Give them the truth that they need to help get them through times of difficulty. Point them to the hope of the Savior. Point them to the fact that we have a good shepherd, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who's laid down his life for the sheep. And so he basically says that the grace of God on display in our lives sort of results in a few um, attitudes that are produced in our lives, one being that of responsibility. I think the emphasis in the first four verses of chapter 5 is responsibility. So, So he's issuing this urgent call for faithful leaders in a time of crisis. And so these are not unrelated subjects. Tough times demand that God's people have true leadership. And my prayer is that during this whole ordeal that God raises up uh, some faithful shepherds to speak truth to where we've been and where we are as a nation of people. It's also a time for God's people to lead with responsibility, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a dad, whether you're a supervisor, whether you're a student, no matter, we've got a mandate to be an example of what it means to follow Jesus because the world around us is watching and we don't have to panic in times like this. So responsibility is an attitude. I think submission is an attitude that's emphasized also. You get into verse number five. Uh, Peter says that the flock ought to willingly follow the leadership of her elders. Pray for those that lead. You know, pray for your pastors and pray for um, your small group leaders. And beyond that, pray for the president of our country. Can you imagine, folks, the weight of responsibility that that man lives with every day of his life? President Trump. That's true no matter who is in the Oval Office. It is a a huge responsibility. And I know it's easy for us at times to say, well, I think you ought to do this and I think you ought to do that. You know, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback, but when you're the one who's out on the field throwing the passes, it's a different story. And so we've got to pray. You know, if you're gonna talk about someone, let's, let's talk to the Lord about that person and let's cry out on their behalf to God responsibility, submission. Uh, Humility is another attitude that's important that's mentioned in this chapter. You get on down to verse um, verse number six. Uh, Look at what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's speaking to believers here. Leaders need to be responsible. Uh, Those who are led need to be submissive, but All of us need to be humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Without humility, there could be no submission. And this really ought to be the posture that we have toward each other in the family of God. I like how one translation puts it, put on the servant's apron of humility to one another. How do you get through times of crisis? You've got to have a humble attitude. You've got to be willing to serve Maybe as he's writing these words, Peter went back to an unforgettable moment in his life when one night a deity wrapped himself in humility and did the unthinkable. When the Son of God himself got on his knees, took a basin of water and a towel and he washed Peter's feet as well as the feet of all of those disciples. That's the kind of humility that ought to be produced in our lives as believers. God opposes the proud. Peter says. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. That word oppose there uh, used up in verse number five, it carries this idea of being set in battle array. As long as we're proud, and let me just speak to our national situation here. As long as we're proud, let me just say this, God opposes the proud and sets himself in battle array against the proud. I don't want to set myself in opposition to the God of heaven. But I want to bow in humility, a posture of teachability before my Maker. And that's why, you know, Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord your God require of you, but to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with the Lord your God? Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. I've heard it said this way, God will do the exalting if we do the humbling, but if we do the exalting, then know that God will do the humbling. So now's an opportunity for us as a church, it's an opportunity for us as a nation of people to really humble ourselves before the God of heaven and trust him. And that's really the last attitude that's mentioned there in verse number seven, trust. Uh, Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Don't just cast some of your anxieties upon him and keep some of you. No, cast all of your concerns, cast all of your worries and your cares and your frustrations, your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. We're not to go through life gripped by panic, gripped by fear, but we're to trust our God with each and every situation in life. The opposite of trust is unbelief, worry. And by the way, I don't know if you realize this, but worry is a subtle form of unbelief, a lack of faith that reveals something in your life. Well, I've got to worry about this because I can't really trust my God to handle it. That's what worry really says, And yet worry deals in a world of hypotheticals, what ifs, what might be. And you know, we deal with assurances. So life's anxieties, they come in all kinds of forms. Sometimes they come in the form of difficult people in your life. Sometimes they come in the form of health concerns, potential sickness, other times they come in the form of needs in the lives of our children and family. But no matter what package they come in, Peter tells us how to process them. He says, cast all your anxieties upon him. That word cast there it means to throw upon. The idea is that we're to throw ourselves upon the mercies and the care of our God because he is sufficient. The psalmist said, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And if God can take me to heaven, I'm pretty sure he can take care of me here on earth right? So, hope in times of crisis. What does crisis do? It works to reveal the character of our faith. It helps to remind us of what's most important in life. It serves to reflect God's grace in our life. A fourth thing that it does is that it helps to recognize our source of conflict. I want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but you get into verses 8 and 9. Look how practical Peter gets here. He says, listen, Be sober. Be vigilant, be sober-minded and watchful because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So he's saying in a time of crisis, when the world around you seems to be spinning out of control, you better be on the alert, but realize that you know, your enemy, it's not the crisis itself. Your enemy. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, according to Ephesians 6, but we have a common enemy. The adversary, the devil, Satan. And you can rest assured God is working behind the scenes. God uses crisis for his own purposes. And the enemy of all souls is subject to our God. Our God is sovereign. Don't think that the devil is on the same equal playing field with God. No. <laughs> Luther said that he's God's devil. He gives an account. But yet Satan can also often be working behind the details in certain crises and the way we respond to those in life. And God wants to use our struggles to bring us closer to himself, but the devil often uses struggles like a crowbar to try to pry us away from closeness with God. Isn't it an amazing thing how, how prayer seems to be on everybody's radar now? Gone is our self-sufficiency. Out the window are our plans. We realize that we are subject to a God and uh, our resources is God's given us prayer and he's given us faith and he's given us himself, he's given us his people. A fifth thing that crisis often does is that it teaches us to rely upon the Lord. You get down to verses 10 and 11 in chapter five. Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. <laughs> Ain't that something? Now you do think about that. Go back and read that, and I guarantee you, no matter where you are watching online, you'll shout. After you've suffered a little while, After you've been through the heat of the furnace, after you found yourself in the crisis for a time being, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ, this is what he's going to do in your life. He'll restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. That's assurance, that's our hope. To him be dominion forever and ever. And so basically Peter is saying, listen, God's grace is sufficient for us no matter what we're faced with in life. And he's reminding these Christians that their suffering is only temporary. It's only for a little while. And that's the way it is for the Christian life. The only suffering that we will ever have will be in this life. And it's momentary affliction. But I tell you, God is at work in our lives and God is providing something for us so wonderful that we can't even begin to imagine it. And it's ours through faith in Jesus Christ. So here at the close of the letter, Peter really paints this picture of a well-rounded warrior who's come through life's battles. He's emerged with maturity and experience that could not have been developed any other way. God had a goal in mind for the faith of these believers and that goal was maturity. Christ-likeness, it's the same thing that's true for us as believers in 2020. And the only way that their faith could be strengthened was for it to be forged in the fire. Let me just give you one final thing that crisis often does for us. Helps reveal the character of our faith, helps remind us of what's most important in life, serves to reflect the grace of God in our life, helps us recognize the source of conflict in life, teaches us to rely upon the Lord, but then it demands that we remember other people. Did you know that? Crisis in life, it absolutely demands that you remember the other people in your life, the people that your life comes into contact with every day. You get to the close of 1 Peter chapter 5 and... You know, Peter closes out this letter just like, you know, Paul closes out a lot of his letters. He mentions people by name. Now, we may think that's somewhat of an insignificant detail, but as far as the Scripture is concerned, there is no insignificant detail. This is all important. This is inspired Scripture. And I think the principle here that we can take away is that uh, people in our lives matter. You've got Silas who's mentioned there. Uh, Silas, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. He says, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. This is probably cryptic language for uh, the church in Rome, uh, where Peter, perhaps, is even going to be held prisoner. Uh, She who is chosen sends you greetings. So does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, he wasn't dealing with the coronavirus, but... The idea here is that relationships are important. The people in our lives are important. Peace be unto all of you in Jesus Christ. So he's saying crisis demands that we remember other people by helping one another. I'm telling you, you you, you study Silas as he's mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, He was a faithful oak. Not one time do we ever have any recorded words that Silas spoke, but you know something? He was with Paul in the Philippian jail He's been with Peter in his imprisonments and sufferings. Thank God for those people in our lives that God brings into our lives that we can rely upon in times of crisis. Encouraging one another, loving one another, all of this, all of this is especially important in a time of crisis. And you'll notice Peter closes his letter by just simply saying, peace be to all of you in Jesus Christ. Peace. That's a statement of hope. When the bottom falls out of life, you as a believer in Jesus Christ can live with peace. When the adversary levels his attack, when plagues begin to spread and you don't know what's next, the believer in Jesus Christ can be at peace. Because we know that our Savior has overcome. He took my sin and my sickness and my shame all the way to the cross, all the way into the empty tomb he is my resurrected and ascended Lord in whom I trust. And the Bible says that He will save all who cry out to Him in repentance and faith. And so, those of you who are joining us online, there may be some of you who perhaps have never by faith received Jesus Christ as your Savior. I can't think of a better, more appropriate time than a time of crisis where God has the attention of a lot of people. Do you know Jesus? If not, let me just encourage you right there where you are to bow your head with me in prayer. And in faith and repentance, cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I confess my sin and my need for you. I cannot save myself. There is a disease far worse than COVID-19 and it's called sin. And all of us are infected. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift, is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to him in trust and faith, believing that he died on the cross as a sufficient sacrifice for sin, that he rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Savior and Lord, and you will be saved. Lord, thank you that we as your people have hope in times of crisis, real hope, lasting hope. Something that's confident, Lord, something that is lasting, something that is concrete. You're sovereign over storms and you're sovereign over sickness and situations. And you're the one in whom we trust. And Lord, you've gotten your people through all kinds of crisis down through the years, personal crisis, national crisis, global crisis. And you're going to safely lead us through this one. Father, I pray for every man, woman, boy, and girl in our fellowship here at Green Street. Lord, I love them with all of my heart. And on a Sunday when we can't meet and interact with each other, you really begin to find out just how much you love God's family. So, Father, I pray that you're able to use this crisis as a means of cultivating greater love for you and greater love and commitment to one another in our hearts and lives as your people. I pray for the least of these, Lord. I pray for our children, Lord, who are often looking to their parents and leaders in their life, maybe hearing things that they don't quite understand. Lord, I pray that they see calm assurance, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of glory divine may they see this assurance at work in our lives as adults God help this be an opportunity where we as the church can just minister to those who have needs the elderly in our midst it means bringing them groceries so that they don't have to get out social distancing does not mean social separation we can pick up our phone we can send someone a text message of encouragement Call those that we love and have conversation. Spend more time together as a family. We've been pulled in so many different directions, Lord, as a people in this generation. Now is the time for us to just pause and remember what's most important in life. So, Lord, we love you. As we respond, may you have your will and way in our hearts and lives. For Christ's sake.